This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, guys. We are all getting ready to head off for the Christmas holidays. We have uh, armloads of screen. Yeah, it's true. It's Christmas and Hanukkah overlap this year. Uh, We have armloads of screeners that we have pilfered from colleagues or uh, somehow otherwise gotten our hands on. Or colleagues have pilfered from us. That's true. I know. (laughs) I know. It's been a a vulture season around here. So before we take off, first, we're going to talk about some of the kind of culling that's happened in some of the categories where there are short lists, such as visual effects and uh, controversial foreign language film, although I feel like that happens every year. It does. And uh, we also are catching up with Rebecca Keegan, our colleague in Los Angeles, who will let us know how Hollywood will be spending the break and kind of what movies everyone will be catching up on. First of all, uh, yeah, let's talk about the uh, foreign language film shortlist. Richard, you've yeah. probably seen more foreign films than any of us and uh, uh, have an opinion on... <laughs> I've seen a few. I've, I've read a few movies you know, uh, this year. <laughs> um, you know, I think because foreign film, the category at the Oscars, it just structured weirdly. So they basically make a shortlist and then they nominate from that shortlist. Yeah. So almost every year something, you know, egregious gets knocked out early. They've established kind of an executive committee to keep anything for like too egregious from getting knocked out. Right. Yeah. There's some oversight there, yeah. you know, but, um, you know, like two years ago, Xavier Delenn's film Mommy, which I thought was one of the best movies of mm-hmm. that year, got out in the first round or something and it was this kind of big outrage. And this year, I mean, I think there are two really surprising outrages, I guess you could call them. Uh, one is that Pedro Almodovar's Julieta, which was at Cannes, got great reviews, has been steadily getting more and more, I think, acclaim. It was viewed at Cannes as like not his best film, but like... It's, but like he's Pedro Almodovar. But I mean, come on. Based on Alice Munro's stories, like it just, it has it all. Knocked out. And then the biggest one, which is insane, considering that its lead actress is probably well, at least in the sixth place to get a nomination, uh, Elle, the Isabelle Huppert movie, is out of the competition. Yeah. Which was France's official submission. Like, it was a big... Th- and it's just not... It's not competing. What's the reasoning for those two exclusions? It's a vote. It's just a vote. Yeah. They just liked a different French movie better. Or no, no. I mean, it's... It's just, oh, it's just a short list. Yeah, and so... you so got to make li- the short list. There's nothing from France on the short list. Um, Xavier Delenn's movie, It's Only in the End of the World, from Canada... Your favorite movie is of the year. nominated this year, which, um, well, I mean, the review that gave him eczema. Yeah. Did you read that? <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, sorry. Um, but you know, Tony Erdman, the German film, that's on which the, won on the, the Palme d'Or, right? Which won something? No, it didn't win anything, but it got a lot of. R- it's a big reviews. deal. It can a big deal. Um, <laughs> it won uh, near Film Critics Circle Best Foreign Film Indeed. Award. 
so that's there. That's probably the favorite. But then there's Land of Mind, a film from Denmark that has been really well reviewed. And then some other things that just haven't been sort of in the conversation. My favorite title among them being the Swiss film, My Life as a Zucchini. My Life as a Zucchini. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. That sounds like perfect holiday watching to me. Um, This this feels like one of the major ways in which the Oscars does not overlap with the larger critical circles, or at least that I listen to, because I remember when Force Majeure did not get the nomination last Mm -hmm. year, and Force Majeure was sort of the foreign film everyone seem to be talking about. And the same is true, I think, of L this year. And so it's great because it pushes me to see films that I might not otherwise see. But, you know, it's very different conversation than sort of our film critic friends are having. Well, and eligibility is always a weird thing because mm-hmm. they're released in their respective countries at a different time. And then you can only have one per country. I kind of wonder if that's an antiquated way to do this, that you can only have one French film be eligible for the best world language film. I mean, I guess it's to keep it from it being like five French films every year. But yeah. And in terms of eligibility, too. It's like, you know, the Oscar for Hottie movie, The Salesman, is in the shortlist, uh, the Xavier Delenn film. And these are not really getting releases in the United States. I mean, I think they're both getting like the minimal qualifying thing. And, you know, non-foreign language films do that too, but then they typically open wide in January. Mm-hmm. Whereas The Salesman and It's Only in the End of the World, I don't think there are any immediate plans for those to open, you know, big at any point next yeah. year. So It's just like the electoral college of the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you know, in the Trump era, just as patriots, I think we should all be voting for Russia's paradise. Oh, yeah. And just a preemptive. Oh. Yeah, no. to, okay. to celebrate our new ties. What about my life was a zucchini, Mike? Well, my life was a zucchini. zucchini. I mean, that's actually my autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So another short list that came out recently was for the visual effects category, which I always find interesting just because you can get some really cutting edge stuff or you can get Oscars won for films that you never would have imagined winning an Oscar. I mean, there's a lot of kind of expected big blockbuster stuff on there like Rogue One and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Captain America Civil War. Uh, The BFG, the uh, beloved and then immediately forgotten not even that beloved BFG Mm-mm. made the list. I loved it. Did you? <laughs> I will say, I am the one who loved it. I'm really intrigued that Kubo and the Two Strings is on there because animated films don't usually get considered, but because Leica makes all of it's their motion, puppets. Yeah. yeah, that would be really interesting. I mean, I don't know how you compare Kubo and the Two Strings. I'm sure that the community one. of visual effects people that are, is all astir about that. I'm yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are furious people about it out there. Uh, Passengers, which uh, I, <laughs> not getting the best reviews, uh, is in there. Well, the zero gravity pool thing. Yeah, is pretty cool. Yeah, oh, I think that's we have, true. Yeah, we have a piece mm-hmm. about that's that true. actually. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. the, that's yeah. what's interesting about the visual effects category is that you get films that maybe story-wise aren't hitting with people, but they have something that looks incredible. And that's a really inventive kind of bit of physics mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they have, yeah so okay okay I take back yeah. my ish I mean I, uh, I although I think my favorite on the list might be the jungle book which mm. I think looks like it's just a typical CGI movie but then you realize you've got this kid acting in the middle of all of in, this in like downtown Los Angeles yeah. yeah and like I kind of believe that that tiger was real I don't know have you guys seen the behind the scenes feature of John Favreau basically like operating the tennis balls as poor <laughs> Neil Sethi like hops around I think I've seen a gif of it or like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but you know, amazing. when we were voting for the New York Film Critics Circle, there was a somewhat healthy debate about whether that was an animated film or not. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, and it we was a really big came debate. down that it wasn't. I think, but yeah, so if you have this one real element, 
mm-hmm. then everything else becomes not animation but special effects. Yeah. So I think that yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, and then uh, I'm reading at Awards Daily where they predict that it will come down between The Jungle Book and Arrival because uh, Arrival kind of being mm. the most Oscar friendly film of yeah. everything on the list, and it does have some pretty beautiful effects. I will say I haven't actually seen Doctor Strange, but people keep telling me how amazing it is. They keep going to see it in 3D. Oh, they do. And it's all about the the look of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, this category, sometimes it goes to the big blockbuster. Sometimes it goes to, you know, the smaller thing that the technicians really understand to be difficult. And they're kind of amazed by that. So I'll be curious to see how it goes down. Yeah. And then one more short list. This one came out earlier this month, but I don't think we ever talked about it is uh, for documentary, which had a Mm. lot of really interesting contenders this year. OJ Made in America, which I think has been really controversial on whether or not it's television or a film. Mm -hmm. I think it would still be my top pick to win the whole thing. Uh, Wiener, a movie that I have not watched since the election and don't know if I could. The documentary about Anthony Wiener. I mean, then there's Fire at Sea, Richard, which was one of your favorite movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, then there's always some classic titles that you're not totally familiar with. Something called Hooligan Sparrow is in the mix that uh, oh. I'm intrigued by. I don't know. Is it all just OJ Made America? I mean, I think so. I think I think there is bound to be, you know, well, two things. One is the debate whether, you know, it, yes, it did get a theatrical release, but true most people who've watched the piece saw it on ESPN in installments like a show so there's that debate but I think the other thing is like in terms of you know awards voters and you know we're going to talk to Rebecca Keegan about what's going on right now with people in screeners it's like that's eight hours Mm -hmm. you know and so are people going to watch two and think it's enough and say yeah like I'll I'll vote for it or are people going to say it's too long I couldn't watch it so I'm not going to vote for it I don't know. We'll see. But I think, yeah, I think that OJ right now is the one to beat. Yeah. When I was making my personal top 10, I was going to put OJ on the list. And then I thought about how I watched it kind of months apart. Like I watched part of it and then I came back to it later and I loved it. And I thought it was a great movie, but I just don't know if I can like properly judge it in that way. Yeah. I watched uh, Wiener on the plane flying back from seeing you guys in New York City this last week. And I will say as a post-election watch, it is harrowing and devastating. <laughs> I can't even and imagine. like, I don't, you know, I... I know that so many people loved it before the election happened, but like the the whole Huma narrative, uh, post election, post you know Anthony Weiner's final stand, if that even was his final stand, in our election season, I just that was a gut punch of a documentary. Well, Joanna, that's my question about this film because I saw it you know it was six months ago or so. But tonally, does it feel off now that we know that he's done even more stupid shit, and now that Huma has become a little bit of a you know why she lost villain in the popular imagination no i mean i think it's huma's story not to condescend to her but huma's story comes off as just like downright tragedy um and then with him because you see him start the documentary like he's been redeemed this is his redemption arc and then he falls and then he ends the documentary with this sort of like meditative yeah i learned a lot this time and then you know that there's more that's not (laughs) even in the documentary yeah I yeah. mean, it's just fascinating. It's really fat to into like his pathology. And there's that scene, which I'm sure you guys remember because it's so striking, of him on MSNBC where he's alone in that studio, just sort of yelling <laughs> at the camera, and you just see his side of it. And it's just sort of like you know, oh, and, with Lawrence and, O'Donnell. Oh, I know. Yeah, and so Lawrence O'Donnell's like, "What's wrong? There's something wrong with you." And yeah. you're somewhat sympathetic to Wiener throughout the film, but when you're watching that, you're like, "No, there is something wrong with this no, guy." There's something wrong with no, him, there's definitely something wrong with him. Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating psychological portrait, and in that way, I, and as a film, I kind of think it. 
I don't know. I, I would vote for it over OJ. I well, I, I really think at some point, if, if if the sharp elbows ever come out, people are just going to be like, this isn't a movie. Yeah. It's yeah. a wonderful television series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not really that complicated. Does no. the documentary category have sharp elbows? I'm very curious. That's like, the question. I, oh, I don't I'm know. I'm sure the I Harvey mean, Weinstein of the documentary category is out there somewhere. It's got to get vicious. I mean, I'm sure it, like any tempest in a teapot, it's, it's probably incredibly vicious in the tiny group of filmmakers. Right. right, um, right. Will that actually actually spread across the academy and actually sway votes i don't know yeah i mean in my tiny critics group there have been a lot of people shouting about whether or not oj is a movie so you know another tempest in a teapot but i think both wiener and oj are required viewing and and fire at sea and fire at sea yes which uh we will uh be talking about and the 13th i mean don't entirely count out the 13th Mm -hmm. yeah and that movie's on netflix it's very accessible is i am not your negro on that list i am not your negro that's that's really good too um, I mean, there's it's it was you know for a year that started out seeming a little bit uncertain documentary wise. There's been great stuff. Yeah, I'm Bobby Finger and I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, "Who the heck is that?" Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. So we're going to welcome Rebecca Keegan, who we have on the line, our Hollywood correspondent, who is going to let us know what's going on in Hollywood now that everyone has uh, gone on a two-week vacation, right, Rebecca? Like, the town is just shut down? Town is shut down. Most of the schools in L.A. are out, so it's a joy, the city right now. You can actually drive places without any traffic, <laughs> because people are in, they're in Mammoth and Palm Springs and Aspen and Telluride and Spain and Mexico and Hawaii and wherever the fabulous people go to spend the holidays with their basket full of screeners. Poor you are stuck in Los Angeles still, but I guess you get to go to all the good restaurants. That's true. Reservations are easy to get. Yeah, it's basically me and like some sad distribution execs who have to answer calls from people like me about (laughs) Rogue One. Like that, that is who is left in town. And we're enjoying the bounty of an empty Los Angeles and the rest of those people are enjoying using the frequent flyer miles, I guess. So talking about those baskets full of screeners, do you think just kind of anecdotally, you know, holidays, time off with family, when most of these movies get watched? For sure. I mean, I know a lot of the people who sort of like producers and below the line people who I talk to at events and things, they try and power through two or three movies a weekend this time of year. But 
for sure, once you get into the holidays, this is when it's just like a couple movies a day. And I will say people really do make an effort to actually see the movies. There's a while there where I think people thought, oh, you know, folks in the Academy or in the guilds, they only see what their friends make or they only see the movies that are on uh, a critic's top 10 list. But people I talk to really try and see even the most obscure foreign language film or, you know, the docs, they actually do make an effort, which is, I think, probably heartening if you're a filmmaker with a little known movie out there. Yeah, that's actually a relief because I feel like I've held on to these stories of people like handing their ballots to their maids to fill out because they don't care about the Oscars. Yeah, I think those are a little bit apocryphal. I mean, maybe people just don't admit it to me, but I have found the opposite to be true where I'm just kind of stunned by people's commitment to see you know, that one documentary short subject, it's like, really? Power to you. Yeah. I mean, I guess that explains, I mean, you know, the Academy with the awards, it has its faults. There's a lot of conventional thinking that happens. But they're also good about nominating, you know, Emmanuel Riva for Amour or uh, Charlotte Rampling for 45 years last year. That does show some degree of due diligence, you know, um, in terms of watching things. It does. And one of my sort of favorite stupid things to do is on the last day that people can submit their Oscar ballots, some people literally walk them into this like accounting firm in downtown LA. And it's super fun to see they come in with their manila envelopes or they send their assistants in with their manila envelopes. But more often it's the Academy member him or herself. And they're like super excited about all of their decisions. So maybe that is a, that's probably a small portion of the group, but I find them sort of charming. Rebecca, do you think that now that they've started pushing people out, that there's any anxiety among Academy members that if they don't take it seriously and do a good job, they might get uh, pushed out? Well, I think the anxiety is about continuing to work, which is already a present anxiety in Hollywood. I don't think it's about participating as voters. It's about making sure you've got some up-to-date credits on IMDb. So you don't lose your voting rights and therefore your invitations to all of your fabulous things. I mean, one of the things the Academy said when they introduced these new rules was that they weren't going to make public whose voting rights they were taking away. And they were going to ask sort of the film companies and people who might know not to make a big deal out of it so that people would still get invited to screenings and they would still get sent screeners. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see as this first year of it plays out to what extent this stays a secret and to what extent people either out themselves out of frustration or, you know, sort of get found out. So now that we have Golden Globe nominations out, SAG nominations out, you know, it it helps clarify the kind of awards race a little bit. Have you noticed since those nominations were announced any change in the tenor of things or have any campaigns sort of burbled into being or dropped away or what is it like now that we're post some nominations? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the SAG nominations were really kind of peculiar this year. And I think normally people who run Oscar campaigns count on the SAG nominations to clarify things more than they actually did. I mean, for instance, you have like La La Land left out of the ensemble prize and it's considered by many of us still a front runner for a best picture. So I actually think things are more kind of unsettled than they normally would be by this point. Do you think there's a movie, like maybe a Hacksaw Ridge or something, that do, do you think there's an opportunity to kind of chip away at that La La Land, you know, front runner status? And what movie would that be if it, if it did? Well, I think Moonlight is for sure breathing down La La Land's neck and just continuing to take every prize that it possibly can. And I think 
for people in the Academy, it's meaningful that Moonlight is taking all these prizes because some of them, this is not a movie that's going to be on their radar screen otherwise. And Hacksaw Ridge is an interesting one. I mean, you know, we talked about that when I was in New York. That really caught a lot of us by surprise. And I think that's one of those things where people have a screener that they might have ignored that they will now not ignore, seeing how praised it has been in so many circles, including by SAG and by the Hollywood Foreign Press. Who would you say is more likely to win Best Director at this point, Damien Chazelle or Barry Jenkins? You know, it's interesting. Best Director is one of those categories where the director's branch you know, of course, picks the nominees. And it is very much about relationships and who people have worked with. And when you have two young directors like uh, mm. Chazelle and Jenkins, they don't have those relationships yet just because they're newcomers on the scene for the most part. So that that's kind of going to be an interesting one to, to me to watch. The branch votes on the nominees, but the whole group votes on the winner, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 But sometimes you could see some peculiar omissions uh, in the director's branch, and sometimes you'll see some peculiar movies get included, like, say, A Silence, which isn't really grabbing a lot of people, but you don't get much more beloved among that branch than Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe, I know that, you know, Denzel Washington is for sure, hoping for a directing nomination for Fences. It'd be interesting to see if the director's branch sort of welcomes him, an actor-director, into that group. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just interesting because it becomes about, particularly with that branch, for some reason, it becomes really heavily about relationships. Right, Talking right. about uh, silence, so when you think about people going home and watching their screeners over the break, isn't silence the kind of movie that's going to suffer the most from that kind of treatment? Like, how is anyone going to be able to focus on this two and a half hour story about monks? Or are they just going to put Scorsese's name down automatically? Well, he's one of the filmmakers that people really try and see on the big screen. There are some people who people will say that's fine to watch on a screener. At least with his past movies, Academy members have gone out to the theater to see them or they go out to the screenings to see them. So that, I think, helps him a little bit if people can get their butts to a screening and sit through the whole thing. But I think you're right. It's a really hard watch if you're home on your sofa. So to the extent that they're relying on people to do that, I think that will be a tougher sell. Rebecca, we're just grilling you, but I have another question. Casey Affleck, is any of this sexual harassment scandal playing into people's calculation about best actor, do you think? It's interesting. I have not heard people talking about it very much. I know that it's for sure something that people are talking about among journalists and among sort of like the young woke world that is on Twitter, but among Academy members and among people who are members of various guilds, there's not been a lot of talk of sort of Casey's background that could burble up when we get into the new year. And we're really that first week of the new year when Oscar ballots are out is when you see sort of competitors trying to torpedo campaigns. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would keep him from getting a nomination. It just seems like that is an unstoppable train at this point. Well, just like looking at the Golden Globe nominations of who might win the Best Actor in a Drama campaign, is uh, you know Viggo Mortensen going to have some kind of like shadow whisper campaign? Who's going to take the biggest target at Casey Affleck that might bring him down? Yeah, that's a hard one for me to imagine. I mean, that's a good example of a movie that I think will not fare as well as we get deeper into the season as it has in the first sort of couple of critics groups or, or SAG nominations. Captain Fantastic, thank you. Yeah, I mean, 
SAG voters vote really early. This year in particular, they were extremely early. And so I think a movie like that benefited because it's an earlier release in the year. More people have had the opportunity to see it. As we get into the groups like the Oscar voters who are voting later, they have more time to see more of these sort of November, December releases. And I think that they will probably bump out Vigo. Although I could be, I mean, you know, this is a head scratcher of a year so far. So what happens? So when everyone gets back from break uh, in January and then there's less than a week until the Golden Globes, like does everything just spring into action? Campaigns go into overdrive or does everything wait until the Golden Globes and then it kicks back in? No, it kicks back in. Really, the Palm Springs Film Festival, which starts January 2nd, I think this year, is sort of the official ringing of the bell. Get back on your juice cleanse, everybody, um, because <laughs> <laughs> award season is officially back in. And they, in Palm Springs, most of the people who are considered likely Oscar nominees will be getting some sort of award in Palm Springs, which tends to function as like a kind of practice round for your Golden Globe speech or your Oscar speech. It's not televised, so it's a little lower pressure. But I have in years past literally heard people make some of the exact same lines and jokes in their Palm Springs speeches as they then do in later televised events. So that starts it up. And then we get into Golden Globes weekend, which is kind of bonkers and you know the last week with the academy ballots out and it's just kind of nonstop. well i hope you're resting up yeah that's the plan is there anything that you've got your eye on that you think is really going to benefit most from these two weeks from everyone really catching up with their screeners and being like oh wow this movie is great well one other interesting thing is to see how box office fares people like a hit in hollywood and so a movie like hidden figures which is a really kind of mainstream appeal and has some buzz for some of its performances if it ends up being a hit at the box office, that will inspire p- more people to sort of recognize it in their Oscar ballot. And that's also something that the Oscar producers are secretly hoping happens because the more that movies that are beloved by audiences actually get nominated, the better chance they have of getting some decent ratings for the show. Rebecca, will you be at the Palm Springs Film Festival? I will be there, yeah. Well, okay, if you have a chance, I was just browsing the, the list of films. There's a movie screening there that I saw in Toronto, and I think I was like the only critic who saw it, from what I could tell. A movie called Brimstone with Dakota Fanning that's one of the nuttiest movies I've seen in a long time. I, if you have time, check Ooh. it out. <laughs> it's a weird Thank Western you. I'm horror adding movie. that to my list. Yeah, it's, uh, I think people will be talking about it next year. So, Well, we'll give you a deserved break before we send you off to Palm Springs. And um, yeah, just keep us posted. And when you know the groundswell starts for uh, the return of Birth of a Nation, or something crazy. We're counting on you to keep us posted. <laughs> I will be here to chart it. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks Great. a lot. Thanks, Thanks Rebecca. Rebecca. So now before we all head off to eat our Christmas hands, we're going to go big before we go home and look a little bit ahead to the award show that will be waiting to greet us in the new year, the Golden Globes. So just for fun, because we don't really do Golden Globes predictions otherwise, let's just be bold. What is going to win both Golden Globe categories, the motion picture drama and musical or comedy? Joanna, make your bold predictions first. Well, so I would like to go bold, but I was actually looking at the history of what the Golden Globes picks. And I know we make fun of them for being this like wacky, erratic sort of award ceremony, but they kind of go down the line when it comes to the drama pick and the wild card is usually the comedy musical but this year we've got an entry like La La Land which seems just like such a sure shot. If La La Land doesn't win something insane has happened. Exactly. So I would say La La Land for comedy and I'm going to go Moonlight for drama. So there you go. Richard? Um, yeah. I mean I think La La Land is clearly the front runner in its category. 
I'm going to be a little bit more conservative, I would say. And this is not what I want to win necessarily, but I think Manchester by the Sea will win. Mm. What gives it an edge over Moonlight with the Globes, do you think? Um, not being black and gay? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's foreign. It's, you know, I don't know. I just think that that movie... Shocks. <laughs> shocks. It's all to talk about shocks. Right. Exactly. <laughs> not a shock. Um, I don't know. There's I think no shocks have been here. <laughs> Oh boy! Actually, I, Mike's Mike's Boston accent actually is going to win everything. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just think that movie has like so much love behind it, and more people have seen it. Yeah. No, no. It's it's interesting you say that because first I wrote down Moonlight, and then I'm like, no, that's probably too black and gay for you know this award. And then I was looking back, and they gave it to Twelve Years Slave, which is a very different kind of film starring African American actors or British actors actually, but. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, but I think that is a decent question. Did Brokeback Mountain win the Globe? Uh, oh, I don't remember. Well, Crash won for Best Comedy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Brokeback Mountain did win in 2005. Yeah, so I, I don't know. But also, well, while we're here, I'm just going to say that, that the, the Descendants won for Best Drama 2011, which is just why that's not a comedy. At, anyway, whatever. Oh, we'll, yeah. Go ahead. I, I definitely would have forgotten oh, there's that. There's the gray the line between comedy and drama is maddening. Yeah. Well, which is what's nice about this year that La La Land is, you know, even though it has dramatic it's, moments. I think what if you, yeah, what if you had a really right. serious dark musical? It would still be in that category. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you. I mean, Les Mis, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I that's true. Floors, Florence Foster Jenkins or whatever. Yeah. I think... Um, I think Deadpool and Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, you know, <laughs> America is an unpredictable place, although this is the foreign uh, critic, so how, who knows? How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> You're probably right, though. <laughs> I was actually going to predict, I mean, I'm with you guys on La La Land, but I, I, don't, I don't know why Lion just feels like it's kind of waiting to jump in there, and with the whole idea that Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight are kind of competing as the top critics' picks, and I think about how La La Land won the New York Film Critics Circle because mm-hmm. Manchester and Moonlight, not because, but you know, after Manchester and Moonlight had won everything, I don't know. I, maybe I see something weirder happening. At Very the international dramas. too. That movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got you know India and Australia playing major roles. So I don't know, mm-hmm. Mike. What do you think? Uh, I think La La Land does have it in the bag. I can't imagine anybody beating it. I think that it's probably Manchester or Moonlight, but I don't know. I could actually even see Lion just because it's incredibly moving. And yeah. if, and if the two kind of critic darlings split the vote. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, maybe it could be Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know. I think this one is a little, it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens. And I don't even yeah. know if it'll be good or bad for whoever yeah. wins, because there might be an immediate backlash to whoever wins. Yeah. If Hacksaw Ridge wins, I feel like that's a canary in the coal mine. Like, you know, the people on the ground in Michigan telling the Clinton campaign, like, uh, we have a problem here. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like, yeah. I feel like that could be like a sign. Right. Yes. That's how I feel about Hell or High Water. I finally watched it this last week and I was sort of tweeting like, gently derisively about it the my twitter feed filled up with a lot of hell or high water defenders oh, so yeah. yeah i don't know man it's that and hacksaw ridge do seem to be these like trump's america movie contenders that didn't you say didn't your dad see. loves hell or high water my dad notorious trump voter did love hell or high water i've not gotten his opinion on hacksaw ridge because we have not talked since okay the well if we're gonna if since we're on that topic i think we should all despite what we said earlier about mahershala ali having this in the bag i think we should all prepare ourselves for jeff, for Bridges, jeff Bridges to win best supporting uh, actor, oh for sure because it seems entirely plausible yeah, yeah. i think yeah. i i think i said this at one point and felt bad because i love jeff bridges and i wish good things for him but i don't even think he would want to be the guy who beats Mahershala Ali at this point. If you know? he walks on stage shirtless but wrapped in a blanket, 
like he is in one scene of that movie. I'll be like, all right. Carrying a six-pack of beer. Yeah, Bridges doing it. If he comes out in character as the dude, I will be uh, yeah, totally sure. fine with it. Yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't put that past him. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, when we come back for the new year, we'll uh, maybe talk about more crazy surprises the Globes could have in store for us. But uh, chew on these while you uh, go about your hobby. Mel Gibson. Yeah. I mean, duds. You know, it's possible. He's nominated for director. Yeah. Well, as Rebecca said, it's a really kind of uh, unsettled seeming year. So many things are possible. Yep. And we've all learned that our predictions can't be trusted. That does it for this week's episode. We will be back in the kind of slow period between Christmas and New Year's talking about our favorite films of the year. So don't go anywhere. And uh, in the meantime, we're at VanityFair.com writing about award season and everything else. On Twitter, at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. Joanna? Joe wrote this. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. This week's award for the most foolproof awards prediction goes to Mike Hogan. Shocks. Shocks. <laughs> it's all the talk about shocks. Right? <laughs> Not a shock. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.